0: So, Dr. Anthony Mays has had various careers over the years, um, from mind numbing factory work at Sunny Crust to the excitement of being a stuntman on TV and in movies. His most recent attempt at um, earning a crust, however, has been as a mathematical phys- physicist at the University of Melbourne. Please make Anthony welcome. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. Okay. So. So this is uh, science, a love story. So this is a story about two people, an uptown girl and a smooth-talking boy from the other side of the tracks. A scruffy nerf herder, you might say. Neither of them were great scientists, but as a team, they changed the world. This pair were more or less solely responsible for the modern scientific enterprise, and yet this man and woman were equals. And this is in a world where this really couldn't be taken for granted. So this is a story about science, And it's inextricably linked to the life stories of our heroes, but mostly it's a love story, albeit with some very pre-modern or perhaps ultra-modern twists. So a lot of the information from this book comes. uh, A lot of the information from this talk, I didn't plagiarise. Sorry. um, (laughs) Is from a book uh, by David Bodanis called *Passionate Minds*, and it's really an excellent uh, introduction. Although, I mean, as with all history, there's some debate about the accuracy, but it makes for a good story. So. So the story begins, as you might expect, back in the good old days, before Facebook, FaceTime, facelifts, face plants, or face palms. It was a great time to be alive, if you were rich, and up until the age of about 37, about which time you'd be dead, and you wouldn't have owned a toothbrush. It was a really romantic time. Gabrielle Emilie Le Tonnelier de Bretoy was born in 1706 to a noble family. She showed early signs of brilliance, but girls were not typically educated at that time. Usually the best they were given was given by a convent convent school, and amounted to a mix of home economics and finishing school. But this wasn't for Emily. Her father, the Baron de Bretois, he really encouraged her education. He hosted a weekly salon every week where intellectuals would gather to discuss what was topical. And he wanted to include his daughter in this world. He arranged for tutors throughout Emily's childhood. She learned Latin, Italian, Greek, German. She studied math, science, music, and literature, and she also became a skilled horse rider and fencer. But this was still pre-revolutionary France. And at the age of 15, she was sent to live at the Royal Court in Versailles, where she might meet a suitable husband. But the first thing she did when she got there was figure out a gambling system to fleece all those useless nobles. She used the money to buy more books, much to her mother's chagrin. Eventually she met an affable Frenchman, well, of course he was, he was a French, Uh, an affable soldier who was a Marquis to boot. His name was Florent Claude, the Marquis du Châtelet, and he wasn't put off by her strong will or her mathematical sleight of hand. They got along well enough and the marriage contracts were signed, then at the age of 18 she was off to begin her married life in his home chateau in Sémur, not far from Dijon. Now Florent Claude, he was a good man, he was upright and he was honest, but he wasn't Emily's True love. Enter Francois Marie Arouet. Is there any French speakers? No. Um, He was a local commoner from Paris. He would later be known by the name Voltaire, who you may have heard of. Francois, or Voltaire, he'd always wanted to be a writer, but his father insisted on sending him to law school. And eventually, after falling out with his dad because of a scandalous affair with a Protestant girl in the Netherlands, he abandoned law altogether. Now, Voltaire had two dominant traits. And this was pretty much to define his entire life's course. The first was an inability to keep his mouth shut. And the second was shameless self-promotion. So as an example of this, he was in a Paris tavern. And he got chatting to another guy there. And the guy said something about these extremely seditious and obscene, yet hilarious poems that were doing the rounds, going viral, you might say. Um, Were they the work of this young man right here? And Voltaire didn't answer at first. So the man assumed he was mistaken. Clearly this boy was too young to have written such clever rhymes. Well, Monsieur, Voltaire replied, okay. I'll translate liberally without the accent. Well, Monsieur, of course I wrote those lines. I just wasn't sure if you could be trusted. But since you're obviously a man of taste and education, I'll admit to it. And a matter of my youth? Well, that only proves my exceptional genius. Well, of course, Voltaire probably didn't write them. And the man, of course, was a police informer and he was thrown into the Bastille. So during his seven months, uh, sorry, 11 months in jail, he wrote the first of his many works that would eventually make him one of the most important people of the Enlightenment. In particular, he wrote a modern version of uh, one of Sophocles' plays, Oedipus. And a lot of social commentary And um, you know, generally causing some trouble. It was first performed not long after he was released, and it was a huge success. He'd finally arrived in proper Parisian society. He was seen at all the right parties with all the right people, and he even found himself dating Adrien LeCouvreur, <laughs> Get around, tongue around that French R. The most in-vogue actress on the Paris scene. But Voltaire being Voltaire, he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and it wasn't long before he was preparing for a duel. Much like a young Marty McFly was doing 150 years later in 1885. <laughs> but unlike the unfortunate Monsieur Galois, who we heard about hundred Oh, not hundred and fifty, <laughs> read the next line, Nancy. Unlike Monsieur Galois, who we heard about from uh, the Labra story last year, and the the speaker was here, I saw him over there, Um, the duel was called off before it got too late, and Voltaire was instead banished to England. And there he learned English, but more importantly, he learned about this guy, Isaac Newton, and now he was really onto something. So it may appear that Voltaire was something somewhat lacking in focus. I mean, was he a playwright, was he a poet, a political commentator, a scientist, or just some social butterfly? Well, keep in mind that at this time, there really wasn't any difference. So the, the word scientist hadn't even, wasn't even going to be coined for another 100 years after that. They were typically called natural philosophers. A renowned thinker at this time was as likely to be equal parts philosopher, theologian, mathematician, sociologist, political activist, artist, and financial wizard. And Voltaire really was the archetype. After a couple of years in England, things had calmed down enough for him to return, and so return he did. He needed money, so he teamed up with a mathematician called La Condamine to play the lottery. And they made a healthy fortune. Now, This wheeling and dealing was pretty good, but Voltaire really wanted to investigate this Newton guy. He knew it was dynamite stuff, stuff that could really rock the establishment. But he couldn't understand it. If only there was someone in all of Paris who would help him really get a handle on this new physics. By this time, Emily. Now Emily, La Marquise du Chatelet, and Florent Claude had two kids. And so with her end of the marriage bargain fulfilled, she moved back to Paris in search of love and intellectual fulfillment. <laughs> I mean, Florent Claude, he was happy enough with this arrangement, it gave him more time for his own affairs. It's not like he didn't like Emily, it's just that she was only his wife. It, it really does seem like the, the French nobles, their lives were a mix of, say, Blackadder and Melrose Place. <laughs> the prevailing view on adultery was surprisingly modern, as long as the two partners were discreet and... They sort of were from the right families, of course, then there's no reason why they couldn't go on with their affair. Very much the free love philosophy, well, with a very conservative aristocrat flavour. Anyway, Emily tried a few romances. One was quite successful with the Duke de Richelieu, the most eligible bachelor in France, but the Duke and Emily fell out when it became apparent he couldn't offer any real intellectual satisfaction. She became lonely and bored. She'd spend all, all of her time with her old and new friends, but they still wanted to discuss The same old pointless and nasty gossip. What was it, new pointless and nasty gossip? She spiralled into depression and developed an eating disorder. And later she wrote, If I were king, I would have women participate in all human rights, especially those of the mind. I'm convinced that many women are either unaware of their talents because of faults in their education, or that they bury them on account of prejudice for want of intellectual courage. My own experience confirms this. She agreed with John Locke's educational philosophy. That is... A child's mind is like a blank slate and their thoughts and personality are formed from what's written on the slate as they age. It's my interpretation. And like Johnny Five, she was worried that her slate wasn't getting the right input. Did anybody get that? Okay, okay, good. She kept up with science enough to know that this Newton guy, from the little that she'd gained from her inadequate books and the Parisian Salons, she knew that this was really important stuff. But if only there was someone in all of Paris with whom she could finally break into these scientific circles. And so, as it often happens, they were introduced by a mutual friend who thought these two oddballs might get along. And get along they did. They were an item almost immediately. The best word to describe their relationship is tempestuous. They were both lost in each other's intellect, like nothing each had ever seen before. They read and they discussed. He taught her to write literature and she taught him how to do calculations. They spent wild weekends in inns and disused family cottages. They struggled against the social norms. He was a noblewoman of the most excellent families, associating and kissing this commoner in public. And they both had their faults. Voltaire, like the stereotypical man, couldn't always keep his mind focused on the job at hand. He wrote to one of his friends, I swear to you, she's a tyrant. To be with her, I have to speak of... To be with her, I want to speak of metaphysics. Take two. I swear to you, she's a tyrant. To be with her, I have to speak of metaphysics. I'd rather speak of sex. Okay, all right. We got there. I need some help. And they bickered. This was recorded by one of their guests a few years later. I think it's Madame's fault. She can be so imperious. Why, when Voltaire came into Madame's room today to read out from his play, she told him he should wear a different jacket. But he said he didn't want to, that he would be cold and would probably catch the flu. Madame repeated herself and he stormed out of the room saying he was ill, and to hell with the damn play. When he went back into Madame's room, Voltaire looked away and wouldn't say a word. But then they started speaking in English for some reason, and suddenly everything was fine. <laughs> and he was, a hy- he was a lifelong hypochondriac. During one of his turns of illness, he became despondent and down on himself. Emily put up with him for a while, but he was insufferable. He exhausted her patience recognizing that Emily was a better mathematician than he was. In his self-pity, he said some things that he probably shouldn't have. So paraphrasing the, David Baudanis' book, who says this pretty well, Voltaire couldn't keep from bragging. He said he wasn't as weak in science as she thought, and in fact, he was very well acquainted with an up-and-coming mathematician named Pierre-Louis de Maupetuit, an excellent and an expert on Newton. Maupetui appreciated him, even if she didn't. Well, Emily immediately set off to begin an affair with Monsieur Maupetuit. <laughs> this expert on Newton, and things were fine for a while, Voltaire didn't say anything, he really was pretty sick, but within a few months she realised uh, that didn't respect her as Voltaire had and for his part Voltaire recovered and missed her immensely, so they were back together. But of course Voltaire couldn't stay out of trouble for long and pretty soon he had another arrest warrant issued. He fled just before the police caught up with him and Emily arranged that he could hide out in one of the Duchâtelet's abandoned chateaus in a town called Syrie in eastern France. Voltaire moved into the dilapidated house and used his own fortune to rebuild it. He had the chateau fitted out as a laboratory and research institute. And when it was mostly finished, Emily moved in with him. Now was the time for some real science. So uh, in their quiet house, far from the social interaction, they set to work translating and explaining Newton's theorems to the modern French reader. Voltaire wrote, Emily calculated. They recreated Newton's experiments and they installed a telescope to compare Emily's calculations with observations. And they were hopeless romantics. Exhibit A, this love note, given to Emily, written by Voltaire, about the moon. It's brilliant light, so perfect for lovers. Lit our hearts, as it lit our love. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they'd work separately all morning, then they'd meet for discussions and meals and work late into the night. The end result was the important book, Elements of the Philosophy of Newton, by Voltaire and... Um, just Voltaire, actually. He, uh, he did write a special commemoration to her in the front, but, uh, I mean, this feels pretty insufficient. She really should have been credited as author. Voltaire was unfortunately still a product of his time. He was enlightened, but not that enlightened. Anyway, the two of them lived at Siri for quite a while, except for Voltaire being exiled again, but he came back. They corresponded with and were visited by many of Europe's leading scientists and intellectuals. Samuel Koenig, Bernard Fontenelle, one of the Bernoullis, Leonard Euler, Alex Clairot, Jonathan Swift, Willem Schravesander, I got some education on this from a Dutch friend, Um, and of course they're all friends like Condamine and Maupetui dropped by. Now in 1738, Voltaire entered a paper to the French Academy, they have a yearly science prize, and this year it was on the nature of heat, light and fire, and lots of people were entering this. But where um, Voltaire was an experimentalist, so he conducted all sorts of experiments, he used all his instruments, all his money, Emily was a theoretician. She disagreed with his conclusions and decided to submit a paper on her own in secret, using some mathematical derivations on the nature of light. I mean, I haven't seen them. She even hinted that there might be light and colors that we haven't seen yet. And the Academy accepted both their papers and awarded the prize to neither of them. But they both received an honorable mention. The, and uh, here's what they wrote. The one and the other of these two essays demonstrate wide reading and a great knowledge of the best works of physics. Besides, number six is by a lady of high rank, Madame du Chatelet, and number seven is by one of our best poets. This was the highest honor that the French Academy had bestowed on a woman, and it was the first time they published a paper by a female author at all. And to put this in context, they didn't even allow women to join until 1979. That's 240 years later, so she never joined. Incidentally, the winner of the prize was Euler, one of the greatest scientists of all time, so they shouldn't feel too bad. So this was a great result for Emily. She experienced a huge boost in her fame and intellectual standing. She was now consulted by the top scientists and mathematicians in Europe, and things couldn't be better. Voltaire, meanwhile, started to fall apart. Up to this time, he'd always come out on top in everything he tried his hand at. Now he was, at best, second. And it wasn't lost on him that, even though both of their papers were judged equal, She had overcome many more hurdles, and it was obvious that she was superior. Then in his late forties, he fell into what we would now call a midlife crisis. He distanced himself from Emily and started treating her pretty shabbily. He spiraled into self-loathing by insinuating himself at court in Versailles, everything he hated. He became one of those ineffectual pampered fops about which he had written so scathingly. Being spurned by Voltaire pushed Emily into depression again, and she was in a terrible way. She gambled frequently, although with none of her scientific panache. She started to lose a lot of money until one night, at one of the Queen's soirees, she lost a fortune. Voltaire, who'd been watching the game, couldn't believe Emily had lost so much. And so he whispered in her ear that perhaps one of the nobles she was playing against was less than honest. But this was serious trouble. A commoner accusing the highest members of the nobility of cheating. So within hours, they'd packed up and fled before they were both arrested. But back together as a team, needing to leave Paris until things called down, they eventually wound up at a town called Lunéville, which is the court of Stanislas, the Duke of Lorraine, the king's father-in-law, and he was also the ex-king of Poland. Uh, soap opera, I don't know. The Duke was exceedingly happy to have two such famous savants stay with him at his little provincial chateau, and they certainly enlivened the place. Voltaire wrote and put on plays and generally fluttered about, while Emily had deep intellectual conversation with anyone who could keep up. While there, Voltaire and Emily gradually put their friendship back together, but it was a slow process. And Emily became involved with a certain Marquis de saint Lambert, an up-and-coming poet from one of those lesser families. Voltaire was too busy directing plays to take much notice, but we shouldn't feel too bad for him, since he'd become a bit of a creepy old man. He'd taken up with his niece, who was much too young for him. For instance, he wrote this to her. How about this heartwarming letter? My dear child, I remember he's sleeping with this woman. I don't know when I'll return. I'm here without my cosy slippers. Or what's wrong without my books? Life in Lunaville is charming, but nothing is as charming as life with you. Clearly his romantic stylings were rusty. Or how about this steamy NSFW note that he sent? (laughs) I will bring you you my member, even if it is somewhat flaccid. I know you don't mind. Just what every woman wants to hear, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everything was going fine until Voltaire disturbed Emily at a somewhat incommodious time. In the words of Voltaire's unflappable servant, Monsieur Lanchon, he said, finding no one outside Emily's door, he felt free to enter without the usual procedure of being formally announced. My master then traversed her apartments, still without encountering any other person, until he came to a small room at the back from which a dim light could be seen. There he came to believe he saw Madame, in close proximity with Monsieur de Saint-Lambert, on a sofa in her chambers, engaged, if I might say, in discourses which concerned neither poetry nor philosophy. (laughs) Voltaire was, of course, outraged, and he went off to sulk, but catching up with him immediately quickly pointed out that her powerful appetites needed a young man to satisfy them. If kindly old Voltaire tried to keep up with her, he might damage his already precarious health, and she cared about him too much to let that happen. Voltaire was overcome. As soon as he could, he found saint lambert tearfully apologised, shook his hand, and thanked him for taking up his slack. <laughs> so to speak, so to speak. Come on, please. Alright. So Emily and her new beau were at first blissfully happy, but they gradually cooled on each other over the following months. They continued to see each other for some discourses, but it was mostly an emotionless procedure. And as it turned out, one of these discourses was the biggest mistake of her life. She became pregnant. Okay, now that might sound terrible of me, but remember this is in the days before scientific medicine. This is before hospitals had soap. Giving birth was dangerous even for young women, and Emily, who's now 42, was long past the average life expectancy. Everyone's reactions were more or less what you might expect. First, the man responsible, Saint Lambert, he ran away and was now happily philandering with Stanislas's mistress. Her husband, Yes, Marie was still married, Emily was still married, her husband was Florent Claude, although you've probably forgotten. He was quite an upright fellow, as I said. When he heard about the pregnancy, he immediately set off to spend some quality time with Emily. If he was gonna preserve her honor by declaring that this was indeed his child, he'd better get down to business right away. And it seemed to work, the public consensus was that Florent Claude was indeed a stud muffle. But in the end, it was Voltaire who showed himself to be Emily's greatest companion. He barely left her side during the pregnancy and it gave them time to really reconnect as soulmates. On their way back to Siri during winter, they, their carriage broke an axle and they both ended up in the snow in the middle of the night. A perfect time for our scientists to get back to work. According to Longchamp, despite the extreme cold, Madame and Monsieur admired the beauty of the sky. Ravished by this magnificent spectacle spread above and around them, they discoursed. <laughs> Not that sort of discourse. <laughs> On the nature and paths of the stars, their spirit being lost in the depths of the heavens, they no longer saw their situation on earth, or if I might be exact, their situation on the snow in the middle of all the ice. But Emily had become convinced she wouldn't survive, and her project on Newton's work was still unfinished. She became an extreme workaholic, as though driven by demons and coffee. Every day she worked from first light until, the evening the following, until early the following morning, getting only an hour or two of sleep a night. She and Voltaire rushed madly from Syria to Paris to Versailles, collecting books, taking observations, discussing with other thinkers. Voltaire urged her to slow down. Since she was in pretty good shape and there's every chance that both her and her baby will come out of this perfectly fine, just as long as she takes care of herself. But she wouldn't be budged from her routine. And Voltaire worried himself sick. He wrote, she believed that death was striking. All she thought about was how to use the little time she had left to deprive death of taking the best part of herself. Eventually, a couple of months before her baby was due, they ended up back in the quiet of Lunaville, where Stanislas, the kindly ex-king and now a duke, had fixed up a summer house for them. He was quite old, and he and Emily discussed the nature of life and death at great length, both of them feeling the transition approaching. It was in this summer house that Emily finished her magnum opus, the definitive interpretation and French translation of Isaac Newton's work. She sent off her manuscript a month before she gave birth. And then she spent her time with Voltaire or alone in the gardens at Lunaville. On the 10th of September, she gave birth to a daughter, Stanislas Adelaide, named in honor of their host. Sadly, Emily died of an infection a week later. And 18 months after that, her daughter also died. So it's hard to end on a positive note now. <laughs> it's hard to end yeah. there. <laughs> now it's put me off. Um, her biggest personal scientific work was the interpretation and expansion of the work on Newton, which was really was an amazing feat. Newton had written his theorems in a particularly obscure way. Oh, sorry, am I running over time? Well, oh, I think I am. Whoops. Um, uh, he'd, he'd written them this way probably to bolster his own sense of superiority and to stick it to a world that shunned him. A particularly keen intellect coupled with some obsessive perseverance was needed to draw aside Newton's spiteful curtains. And that's where Emily came in. I'm practicing my Voltaire, you see. For instance, her most enduring contribution was in the concept of energy conservation. Now Newton had known that there were different types of energy, like heat, and light, and kinetics, like things that move. And oh, sorry, I expected the audience to choke up, but I didn't think I would. But it was really Emily who nailed down this idea, and that energy is never used up or created. It's just transformed from one form to the other. A direct line can be drawn from her work down through the names like Lagrange, Laplace, Kelvin and Maxwell, to the crowning glory of this idea, which is Einstein's relativity. Even the Feynman diagrams that we heard about on this stage last month, and the results of the Large Hadron Collider rely on this most fundamental concept of energy conservation. And her translation of Newton's Principia is still the standard French version. But more important than these scientific insights was the effect that Emily and Voltaire's independent lab at Ciri had on the whole European scientific endeavour. It was one of the world's first real research institutes and the model for all since. They had scientific visitors, they maintained a correspondence with the greatest names of the day. They showed that independent research can be done away from the confines of the establishment that was stifling new ideas. And of course, we can't overlook that their achievements, being roughly equal, really showed that women could be the intellectual equals of men. Of course, the dissemination of this may still not be complete. For his part, Voltaire was devastated. Sure, he continued to write and went on to become one of the most important thinkers in history. He gave up science, but his political and social theories directly influenced the French revolutionaries and the US founding fathers. Oh, we've got an American here. So you say thanks to Voltaire. He moved out of Syrie permanently and ended up in a chateau in Fauny, just on the French side of the Swiss border near Geneva. The town's now called Fernie Voltaire. You can get, on, you can get to his chateau on the bus F from Geneva. I had the chance to visit it one day, but I ended up spending too long in the town haggling over some chocolate fudge and the ch- chateau closed. I think Voltaire would have been proud though. <laughs> At any rate, despite all his wealth, he never fully recovered from the loss of his soulmate. He wrote, I've lost half of myself, a soul for which mine was made. And in the words of, um, of Boudanis, his book I referred to before, his servant Longchamp would find Voltaire wandering in the apartments he'd shared with Emily plaintively calling her name in the dark. And so I'll finish in Voltaire's own words in a piece he called Ode. I shall await you quietly in my meridian in the field of Siri, watching one star only, watching my Emily.